Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya I bow to the Lord Vasudeva. I bow to him in you. I bow to him in my Guru. I would like to read today from Conversations with Yogananda again. It's the basis of our programs. Saying number or conversation number 117. My Guruji said, when I was in India in 1935, I met a wonderful saint. The two of us together became great friends. Together we sat under a tree, discoursing to many people. Someone placed rupees 200 in my lap and fled so I wouldn't be able to thank him. Everyone pleaded with me, please don't leave us, remain here. If you'll agree to stay, we'll build you a hermitage. I could have remained in that setting very happily, but I thought of you all, the potential saints in America, and I knew I had to come back. The next time I am born in a human body, however, I will spend many years wandering blissfully by the Ganges. The Master told us he would in fact be reborn after another 200 years. He would live for a time the life of a wandering sadhu. Then he would gather his disciples around him and withdraw like Babaji to the Himalayas. It's very interesting to contemplate the life of my guru because it was not the life of one who is seeking, but one who is found. Not one who is hoping still to attain final freedom, but who attained it long, long ago. He is one of a handful of great masters who come to this world again and again for the sake of uh, the salvation of souls, but also of the planet. It's a... you see, when you reach a certain level where you've overcome and finished your, your own karma, normally a soul just elects to merge back into God. But a few great souls, and they're great for our purposes, of course, but I want to make clear that there's no great, greater, or greatest in God. They're all the same. No one can be greater than the, the one with the infinite. Still, those who do come back, they're great for us, because without them, where would this poor, dark, weeping planet be? They keep that one little desire, as my guru explained it to me, to help people. And with that, they, that brings them back here again and again. They have no other purpose. When I hear some of my guru's disciples speak about how Master was a stern disciplinarian and so on, he wasn't stern. He came here to help us. And yes, sometimes for our good he could be stern. But that's altogether different. It wasn't as if he was expressing personal displeasure or dissatisfaction. He didn't have it. He was the friend to everybody. And if he was stern sometimes, it was usually a sign that he wanted to help that person more. But this coming back again and again, I have thought what a heroic role he had. 
It was not the life of an ordinary saint living in a quiet, calm ashram by the Ganges. He had to go to uh, a very materialistic country, America. It's also a very spiritual country, which is what attracted him there, which is why so many Swamis and other spiritual teachers have gone to America, not for the money, some do, but many go because they feel that there is a hunger there. You know, America, North America, United States of America, was founded on um, the principle, with the desire for spiritual freedom. The Pilgrim Fathers came to America in order to be freed from persecution so that they could pursue religion according to their own conscience. So yes, there was that. And in fact, when I was living here in India, it was necessary for me to go back to America. It was a, a pain until somebody came here from Oakland, California, and visited the house where I was staying. And she was so sweet and devotional that it reminded me of the sweetness there. It's altogether different from what you read in the Washington Post or the New York Times. There is a, a sort of substructure there that is not represented by the intelligentsia, but of real devotion. And of course it was that which drew my guru. But at the same time, um, there is that other aspect of it. It's sort of a layer of worldliness and sophistication and having to prove it. And uh, whatever you're saying, you have to sort of back up with facts. It's okay, but it's a bit much sometimes. I can think how it must have been difficult for him. I know Swami Vivekananda, when he went to America, he used to suffer moods of, of uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but it was certainly difficult for him. Tagore, when he went there, it was a very painful experience for him. And my guru had to live there for 32 years braving that, those materialistic climbs. Certainly when a master like that comes into the world to do God's will, he doesn't come into an easy life because he's there to change things. He sets the tone for great sweeping changes in civilization. This has been his destiny in past lives, and no, he's not the only one, but there are others too who have that purpose. Nonetheless, you can imagine that after that, they want uh, a period of rest. And so he told us he would be with his guru in Hiranyaloka in the astral world for a couple of hundred years. It's not very long in the astral world. And then that he would come back here and live a life more of retreat and seclusion. And he said his own disciples also, they had, they too, after all, they've come to him as disciples. They want God. So naturally they're drawn to the hermit's life. I remember I said to him in 29 Palms after I'd been alone in the desert for a while, how I'd always wanted to live that way. He said, that's because you've done it before. He said, most of those who are with me have been hermits many times. So we live that way for a while, then we have to come out. The divine play is quite extraordinary. It's really a fascinating adventure. For instance, he told us that Abraham Lincoln had been a yogi in the Himalayas who died wanting to bring about racial equality, and so he was born in America and uh, became Abraham Lincoln. Then um, 
he had to go through that that uh, sort of experience that he'd gone through as the president, not appreciated, not understood, having to do a really great work. But because of that lack of appreciation, he came back as Charles Lindbergh, who was a person of, um, he didn't do much. I mean, it, it, uh, yes, I suppose it was a big thing, but comparatively, after all, he, he was the first person to fly not all the way across the Atlantic. Well, um, yeah, I suppose it was a great thing, but in proportion to that deed, the popularity of that man is surely only accountable for that he didn't get the popularity he deserved in the life before. And I suspect that in the next life, he will be another, yo another time a yogi in the Himalayas. And so we have been this way as disciples of this great guru, sometimes with him in an outward role. And uh, yet I know that in my life, too, there's always been an inner longing for the life of a hermit and just a sort of a thought, why do I have to do all this outward work? And yet he told me, you'd better do it. You'd better like it. It's what you have to do. And I have to admit that there is that desire to help people, and you can't help them hiding behind a bush. You've got to get out there. Well, that was his life, and we're just sort of little shadows of his running in his wake. But I can see how he surely, in uh, his inner consciousness, it would be right and natural for him to have a lifetime where he can just wander by the Ganges. How often he expressed the wish to have that kind of life in this time. And when he met a great saint, Sri Rama Yogi, whom I had an opportunity to spend time with too, he said, that to me was India. That's what I love about this country. The love of God, the dedication to God. He said that um, he walked hand in hand with Rama, Yogi Ramya, he was called at that time, and later became known as Sri Rama Yogi, in the ashram at Arunachala of Ramana Maharshi. And they walked hand in hand. He said, oh, if I'd been with him another half hour, I, I could never have left India again. You could see that human side. He was not human, but when you assume a human personality, you assume humanity. It's not as if you become sort of a megaphone. Um, you, you take up that personality once again that you have overcome, but it's still a memory in uh, your consciousness. And in that sense, it's eternal. You never leave your ego in the sense of uh, dissolving it, the infinite, it ceases to exist. You become infinite. The infinite becomes infinite. But you remember that for a while the infinite played the role of Joe Blow or Paramahansa Yogananda. And that is the wonderful drama. You know, one good reason for finding God, apart from all the obvious ones, which is you'll never find happiness without it, you'll find fulfillment with it, you'll find oneness with everything, it's just an absolute perfection. But at the same time, just think of the drama of it all. And if we could just be behind it all and see this great drama of souls and how it isn't just one lifetime, it's so many lives you come back again and again. And uh, it's all God playing in these different roles. But 
then probably after that next life you'll have another big role to do. But this, this one role, um, somebody asked me, or said to me, I should say, I'm sure you look forward to being with him then. Well, you know, I was sort of surprised by my own answer. I said, I'm not so sure. I don't want to have an, uh, I don't want to assume my ego again. I don't want to, I want, I want to merge in the infinite. And yes, I do have to admit to a really deep desire to help people, so maybe that's what will bring me back. But apart from that, I just don't want to be my ego relating, even to my guru. I'd rather be one with him in the infinite. This is the goal. And uh, I'm probably a very ordinary soul rather than one of these diamonds who will indeed find himself just merging into that watchful state as he described when he saw his highest woman disciple at, at death. She just merged into that state of Brahman and uh, became one with him. What a wonderful apotheosis to all these incarnations. Just think of it. All the sorrows, all the fulfillments, all of them temporary, all of them leading towards some goal. It's the best romance you could possibly imagine, the best novel you could imagine. And it doesn't have the normal ending that uh, he described in talking about uh, the average movie plot of a romance where the hero is so handsome and the heroine is so beautiful and they finally get married and everybody applauds and everybody goes out feeling happy that here finally was one story that ended happily. And as my guru said, the producer is very smart, he's clever. He doesn't let you see the morning after, as with he put it, as he put it, rolling pins and black eyes. He said, no, of course marriages don't always go that way, but still it's a compromise, and that too is a disappointment. It's a compromise with the perfection of love that our hearts long for. We all want to have perfect love, perfect happiness, perfect bliss. This is what God is. Now, he also, however, in wandering by the Ganges in solitude, is giving us a lesson for our own upliftment, too. He doesn't have even to wander with God. He's in God. But that thought that, that you don't need more than just to wander hand in hand with God everywhere, to be able to have that blissful thought of being his child and not having to be important. When you look at people, even swamis, it's kind of pathetic to see how many of them are vying with one another for their own importance. What in God's name for? You're in this world for such a short time, it's not worth it. A few puffs and you're gone. And where are all those beautiful flower malas and people touching your feet and everybody saying, Maharaj, what does it all mean, for heaven's sake? You're just a child of God. That's all any of us is. And so when you think of him wandering in sweet simplicity and innocence from village to village, I remember a beautiful story about Ananda Mohima. She was wandering and she sat down outside a village under a tree. It was hot and maybe she wanted to rest a little bit. Somebody stopped, talked to her for a little bit, 
hastened to the village, brought others, they hastened, brought others. By the end of the day, there was a crowd of people around her. They didn't know who she was, but they just liked being with her. Isn't that the wonderful way to teach? That, I'm, that my guru, when he wa- will wander by the Ganges, will be teaching in that way. It doesn't have to be this great lecture, this huge organization, which is as much a misfortune and a curse and a burden as it is a blessing. I've always thought of organizations as a necessary evil. There's a great difference between religious organizations and spirituality. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's not the organizations. It's you and God and your guru. I think of the life of St. Francis, how he left a very wealthy home and just wandered in the fields with God and how thousands came to him. What a wonderful life that was. You know, I wrote a slideshow. I've taken a lot of slides just for the fun of it. And then I did a slideshow uh, about his life. And I wrote a number of songs for that. And one of the songs that I wrote was just as I visualized him dancing in the fields with God. Father, now that I wander with thee, flowers and fields seem alive with thy joy. This was the essence of this song. We're going to sing it to you now. I hope you like it. Joy to you. Father, now that I wander with thee, flowers and fields seem alive with thy joy. All that I own to thee, I give, and now I sing, and I love, I am free. Father, now that I dance in thy name, birds and animals share in my song, all my sorrows, all Sorrows all. 